I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, Antiheroes Journey podcast crowd? Doc Askins here again, bringing you another one of the Q5 podcast episodes that I know you love so much. That's when I ask five of my favorite questions to people that I think are cool. And today on the podcast, I've got Dr. Matt Wall. He's a psychologist, neuroscientist, and specialist in neuroimaging, particularly functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, of the human brain. He completed his PhD at Cambridge, postdoctoral positions at Royal Holloway and UCL, and is currently head of MRI applications at Invicro London plus an honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College London. He's authored over 70 scientific publications, is an editor at Scientific Reports, and his research currently focuses on psychedelics, cannabis, sex hormones, and methods development for fMRI. Dr. Wall, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Can I call you Matt? Of course. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm excited to have you, and we're just going to get rocking and rolling right off the bat with the first question. What's your story? Well... My story. Well, I mean, you covered some of it, right? So I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I, I still feel like I'm a psychologist at heart, even though a lot of the stuff I do these days is a uh, brain stuff. So I, I did my first degree at a place called the University of Sussex, which is on the South Coast in the UK. Very nice place. Very fun. It's a bit of a party school, to be honest, but a good, it's still a good school. Then I didn't really know what to do with my life, and one of my uh, one of my lecturers suggested that I seem to be pretty good at doing this research stuff because I'd done a pretty good research project in my final year. So he said, "Why don't you apply for a PhD?" And that hadn't really ever occurred to me before. But I thought, okay, that sounds good. Another four years of not having to get a real job. So I did, and I was lucky enough to get. Uh, PhD position at uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK as well. And from that point on, well, from doing my PhD, my PhD was a, was a failure, frankly. So I, I you know, I, I worked really hard. I picked, I picked the wrong topic. I was, I was an idiot, right? I was a young kid. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and I went in there and uh, I said to my supervisors, I really want to do this thing. And they were like, well, okay, that sounds okay, but, you know, it's a bit risky. Why don't you try this other thing that we've been working on for a while that will probably work? And I was like, no, I want to do this thing. <laughs> and, and, of course, they were absolutely right. And I spent, you know, three or four years banging my head against this thing, trying to get it to work, and nothing worked. 
but it was a good learning experience. So I ended up, I don't know if you know, like in academic work, it's all about the number of papers you publish, right? That's that's publish or the perish, they that's say. What, exactly, right, right. So I ended up getting a big fat zero papers published from my PhD. That's my favorite number, uh, but I'm sorry that you got zero <laughs> papers published. Yeah, well, you know, that's how it goes. But fortunately, this was like 20 years ago, and it wasn't quite as competitive back then as it is now. So I was fortunate enough to get a, a postdoctoral position at Royal Holloway, as you said. And, and I was even more fortunate that uh, at that point, this new technology called fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging was uh, was coming along well this was like 2003 by this point so people you know people invented fmri in the kind of mid 90s but it was really it was really specialist there was only a few places in the world that were doing it back then but by about 2003 people were starting to get interested in it particularly psychologists because you know you could do kind of psychological tasks with people in the scanner and actually look at their brain while they're doing these tasks. And it was this was really the first time that we've been able to do that. And people were, you know, quite excited about that. And I was at the time. And I finished my PhD. And my PhD was nothing really to do with that. I kind of realized this was a this was going to be a you know a big thing. So I was like, okay, I want to try and do something related to that. So I was lucky enough to get a, a job at a place called Royal Holloway, which is just outside London, doing that stuff. And I spent about six years at Royal Holloway doing actually really, really basic, low-level stuff on like vision, how the brain processes visual information. You know, the whole kind of back quarter of the brain is the is the occipital lobe, which is where you, we process the information that comes in from the eyes and it's incredibly complicated and it, you know, it just happens. We don't think about it really, but the whole back quarter of the brain is taken up with doing all that processing of data from the retina in the eyes. And there's a lot you can, you know, look at with that, but it's not, you know, it wasn't really psychology. It was kind of, there's nothing psychological about, about that really. It's not about thoughts and feelings. It's just about how the brain works, but it was a really good training in, um, uh, those kind of methods in how you how you design experiments for fMRI and do that kind of stuff. So I spent six years doing that, and then I got another job at a university in London, which was looking at a pain uh, project. So I was I was basically putting people in the scanner and poking them with sharp sticks and things like that, <laughs> and seeing, science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, was, I was actually I was actually giving people electric shocks in the face. <laughs> which sounds horrible we had these yeah i've done some weird stuff we had these these tiny little electrodes they're very small about a quarter of an inch across that we could just stick on someone's face and they give you this real kind of sting uh kind of uh, little sensation and we we're interested in the trigeminal nerve which is sure. the nerve that that innovates the face so we did it on the face yeah so i actually i spent a year giving myself electric shocks in the face while I was trying to figure out how to do it safely. <laughs> is that the, is that the picture give... pinned on your LinkedIn account where you've got the stuff taped to your face? Is oh, yeah, that yeah, is? Yeah, 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 yeah. It reminded yeah, me yeah, of yeah. Uh, videos of people running the Tough Mudder races where they used to hang right. electrodes and like some of them were – you know, low voltage, some of them were high voltage and somebody get caught and get right. tased and fall down. And that, <laughs> Okay, so you were doing that in a lab. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I spent a year giving myself electric shocks in the face and then I 
finally graduated to giving other people electric shock. <laughs> That's the rule in taser training, just to let you know. Like I've deployed with a military police company and you got to be tased right. before you're ever allowed to tase anyone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I think it's very fair. You know, in all these things, you should never ask your subjects to do something that you're uh, not prepared to do yourself. It's a good leadership principle in general. <clears throat> and I only managed to burn one of the subjects. <laughs> Jesus so I, burn, I burned myself loads of times. But, but, um, <laughs> well, then it's fair, right? That's fine because it's because it's you. You know, that's all right. But yeah, I only managed to burn. I only had one incident where I actually burned somebody. But that was another, that was another, you know, if I'm being honest, that was another kind of failure for three years because that didn't really work out either. You know, we, we, we tried and tried to get this method working. We were interested in a very particular area of the, of the brain that we never really figured out. So, but around the same time, I met a young guy called uh, Robin Carhart Harris, who was setting up an experiment looking at MDMA. And uh, he wanted to do fMRI with this experiment. And somebody introduced us and he was like, oh, you know about fMRI. You want to come and help me out with this MDMA study that I'm doing? And I was like, that sounds awesome. Of course I do. Um, <laughs> Graduating from, you know, tasing faces to tasing souls. That's cool. Well, sure. Yeah. So Robin at the time was working as a postdoc. I think he finished, finished his PhD by that point, working for David Nutt. They were doing studies with psychedelics. So around that time, they were doing the first, the very first studies with psilocybin, where they put people in in brain scanners. They had this MDMA study up and running. And at the time, it was there was there was nobody really looking at that stuff. This was 2011, I guess. Okay. Uh, I mean, the maps the maps people had done a couple of small studies in the US in the early 2000s. Yeah, that's cutting edge on that stuff. And there right? was um, yeah, and there was Roland Griffiths, at Johns Hopkins, and his guys that were doing the first studies with psilocybin, but that was it. It was, you know, a couple of people in the world, really. So it was a cool, it was a cool thing. Uh, and also that's, that MDMA study was being being funded partly by a, a British TV company and they wanted to they wanted to film it and make a program out of it. So it was cool. Oh, yeah, I'll be on TV as well. That sounds awesome. So we did that study. So, so you were on a TV show in 2011 about the MDMA-assisted or the MDMA study yeah, with fMRI? I think, uh, I, think I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think I featured very briefly on it. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty much there in the background sometimes, I think. That's pretty cool. I was in Iraq in 2011. Yeah, it, it was, was a cool. whole different, you know, war. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't A whole different chapter like for so me. But yeah, that's awesome yeah. what you were up to. So that's how I basically got started doing what I do now, which is which is pharmacological brain stuff so through through meeting robin and david i, I got I got in put in touch with some other people who needed some help and the same thing they came to me and they said are oh, we doing this study with cannabis do you do you want to help us out i was like well that sounds awesome as well yeah sure of course i will then robin and david were setting up their their first clinical trials with psilocybin for depression that they did in about 2014 2015 and i was involved in those and I've continued really working with the the, the Imperial Group, uh, at, uh, the group at Imperial College London, who do a, a lot of psychedelics research, and working with another group at uh, uh, University College London, who do a lot of work with cannabis. And then alongside that, I don't only do drugs; I also do sex. <laughs> what about rock and roll. I've got into uh, well, yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Do a bit of rock and roll as well. For those of you only uh, having audio available <laughs> to you, he just showed me an epic guitar collection in the background. Yeah. Where was I? Oh, yeah, sex. So um, <laughs> alongside that, uh, I started working with another group at Imperial College who are into figuring out this particular sex hormone called kispeptin. And uh, kispeptin seems to have some brain effects. And so, yeah, I spent the last few years showing people porn, really, in the scanner. Showing people Jesus Christ. Sex videos in the scanner. You're amazing. Yeah, we've done, a, we've, done, we've done a couple of studies. I, I, I Seriously, I don't Taser know faces, came... MDMA, psilocybin, magic brain magnet technology, rock and roll, yeah, I, and porn research. Porn. I don't. I don't know how I ended up being the sex and drugs FMRI <laughs> person. I, I really don't. What was, it was, what was the topic of the failed PhD? Like, what was the title of this so-called failed oh, PhD? Oh, that was. Um, yeah, that was. Well, it was. It was all about anxiety and and uh, the the kind of the effects that anxiety can have on cognitive processes and attention and stuff like that. But yeah, like I started out. Like my first job was really boring, worthy, low-level visual processing. Right, yeah, you yeah. know. It's good stuff, but it's never going to excite anybody, you know. Except and somehow Andrew I've ended up here. <laughs> oh well, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. He might, he might like it. Somehow I've ended up sex and drugs. Yeah. Anyway, so we did, we did one. We've done a couple of studies with women with the porn thing, and we've done one study with men, and the men's study was particularly hilarious. So this, I mean, the whole thing, <laughs> yeah, inescapable, with the whole hilarious. porn thing has been hilarious. Yeah, especially because I had to spend, I had to spend weeks watching porn. Um, in order to find the right clips that we were going to use in the scanner, in order to my wife, you know, minimize. My wife is very understanding. The, what's yeah, the placebo wife, control for this? My wife is very understanding. Uh, what's, what's, we, the we actually, yeah, what's the sham? What's the sham control? It's a good, uh, good question. Yeah. So we actually decided we were going to use kind of exercise videos. So <laughs> the, the, the sex, the sex videos that we used were you know a man and a woman doing that. so we 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 just trawled youtube to find just a man videos of a man and a woman kind of doing some kind of exercise together like doing squats the thigh or thigh master know. or the bowflex yeah, or something yeah yeah well you know same number of people same well, kind of often similar movements you know this is brilliant you, know, you try and match these things as close as you can so yeah we've done a couple of studies on women we, we've done one study on men for the, for the male study. We actually had a small device that we attached to the appropriate part of the, the men in order to measure their, their reaction. Yeah. yeah. Instead of the, an EKG, it's like so a PKG. Was, is that what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. I like that. Uh, yeah. So that was also hilarious. And the next one we're doing is actually going to be uh, the same thing, showing porn and this sex hormone in uh, postmenopausal women. Oh, so, wow. you know, I'm going to be showing porn to my, my mother. You know? <laughs> Not exactly my mother, but, you know. Same age set. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> I'm on pins and needles waiting for all of the results of this stuff to get published. <laughs> like, I got to see this. Uh -huh. Reading between the lines the, uh, of journal articles is like my new favorite hobby. Oh yeah, in like the psychedelic yeah. The, space, I tell you what, right? the the best the best data we got from all of those studies was the was the device that we attached to the guys' penises. So these are all these are all people that have uh, that have basically low sexual desire, right? So we we recruited people with this particular problem. This sex hormone worked incredibly well. If you look at the data from 
that we got from this device that we attached to the guy's the guy's penis, you get an increase of about 50, 56%, I think, by the end of, of the video when they have the sex hormone compared to when they have placebo. So yeah, it's, it's wild. What do you call that metric? Like the tumescence ratio or? <laughs> yeah, penile tumescence. Exactly. It. That's what we call it. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that that kind of brings us up to date. So we've got various studies running right now, both on the psychedelic side and other things. Just finished a big cannabis study that we're still analyzing the data on, where we've we've looked at the effects of uh, cannabis on on adults and uh, on teenagers as well, kind of 16, 17 year olds. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because that's kind of an important yeah, thing. Yeah, there's questions cause... about right neurodevelopmental vulnerability yeah, during that period, exactly. schizophrenia and, and some of that stuff, right? Yeah, and teenagers tend to smoke weed. <laughs> there's um, that. Teenagers like seem to like it. So yeah, we're still analyzing the data on that. We've got a psilocybin for anorexia study that we're that we're just finishing up as well, which is going to be awesome. We've just we're looking at the data from a ketamine study. Oh, okay. Where we've used where we've used MRI and we've also used a, a different kind of brain scanning technology called PET, positron emission tomography. And the PET side of it is hopefully going to give us a readout of the kind of neuroplasticity effects of ketamine hopefully that we can relate to kind of more functional changes that we see with the MRI so yeah we've got some exciting stuff going on yeah very much that's super exciting strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50 percent these guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60 percent on their income taxes click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you if you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes then just ignore everything i just said what an incredible series of stories you have in your story that's a uh... That's a lot of fun. It's been fun. I want to double click yeah. on a bunch of this. Like maybe we can have you back for like a three hour episode sometime or something like <laughs> that. We can just, uh, you know, go nuts, but we'll, uh, we'll roll on from the first question to the second question here. Uh, the first one's about, you know, memory and about the past and where you're coming from with your story. And the second question is what are your intentions, which has more to do with imagination and orientation toward the future. So what are your intentions, Matt? You have, you picked really good questions, man. Really really tough ones but really good ones i like what i do right now i mean i've actually kind of been kind of doing the same job for 10 years and i have i'm kind of fine with that you know i i don't really have much desire to go and do something do something different because it's always interesting and it's always fun and and new things come along uh, you know people come along and say i've got this you know this cool set of data will you help me out with it or or i'm setting up this study so, which is really nice. My intentions for the future are really, I mean, I, I'm in the whole psychedelic space. I'm a, I'm a kind of a minor player. I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not going to be one of those guys who is going to, you know, challenge the law on these things or be a, be a, be a kind of strong advocate for legal change and everything, things like that. It's not that I don't feel like that's important it's just that's not my kind of skill set i think and my background i want to understand i want to understand these drugs i mean i think that the, the the point that we're at now with the whole psychedelic movement if you want to call it that is 
really crucial you know we we just we're just about getting there you know maps is 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 nearly there at getting mdma into being a through the fda you know australia's already done it with mdma and psilocybin which is great probably there's another organization called, called compass they're going to try and get psilocybin through the fda next year but i feel like it could still all go wrong it could you know i i i worry i worry about there being some some high profile failure of a clinical trial of one of these things or i worry about something you know something awful happening somebody commits suicide after being in a psilocybin trial or something like that and that could set us back you know 10 years again sure and let me interject that you know as a scientist you're you're aware people die by suicide, you know, in the placebo arm of clinical trials, you know, every year, like we're aware that these things go on, but it's not common knowledge, the, you know, the correlation and causation and associational levels and all of the ways that things get parsed out in scientific circles really hasn't trickled out into society meaningfully enough that people would, wouldn't immediately associate like the title of the trial with suicide if that was a headline, right? Which is unfortunate. But even if that were to happen, that doesn't demonstrate any kind of positive harm. A lot more work would have to be done around those sorts of things, right? I mean, I share the same concerns, but I want to try to you know educate the audience as much as possible around some of those sorts of things. Yeah. I feel like there's such public scrutiny on these things you know at the moment that, that yeah you're right that, that could be a problem so uh, yeah we got away from the question a bit what are my intentions <laughs> i just want to understand i just want to understand these things i want to understand what they're doing in the brain and help to design better treatments better ways of using them and get them out to patients as fast as we can i tell you why i should have included this in the first question in the story I, i'll tell you when i became a, a kind of a convinced of this stuff it was in the first clinical trial that imperial did for psilocybin and it was uh treatment resistant depression patients okay so these are these are patients where they've tried a bunch of different treatments before most of them had tried several uh, kind of antidepressant drugs a lot of them had tried lots of different kinds of talking therapy a couple of them had even had electroconvulsive therapy things like that some of these people have been depressed for 20 years, 25 years, you know, and I, you know, I, like I said, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't really get involved in the kind of clinical side of these things, but what we were doing in that trial was we were scanning their brains before they had the treatment and then they would come back about a week later and I would scan them again after they'd had the treatment. So I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the treatment it's, uh, itself, but I saw them before and after because I was there for doing the scanning and helping them into the scanner and so on. And you know, a lot of these people, when they came in for their original scan, their baseline scan before the treatment, I mean, they look terrible. They've been depressed for 20 years. Every, you know, everybody, everybody looks terrible after that. And some of these people, when they came back just a week later, they were transformed. It was, it was incredible. And they looked like different people. You know, they were alive, energetic, engaging in a way that they just weren't. They hadn't been before. And that's when I've, I've, I really thought, ah, oh, you know, maybe there's something in this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have similar anecdotes that I could share, but I don't want to uh, make the episode run too long. So I'm going to stifle here a little bit, but I appreciate those intentions greatly. I think that they're very much oriented towards some good in the world. 
the way that I'll usually ask about the third question is, you know, you, we talked about the past and we talked about your orientation towards the future. And then one of the secret superpowers that people have for making those things match is gratefulness. What are the things that you're grateful for? How will you use gratefulness to integrate your memories and bring them towards your intentions? Hmm. I feel very lucky to be working on this stuff at this time. And especially with the, with the kind of slightly weird career that I've had where my PhD didn't really work out. And then I did something else for a while and then I did something else that didn't really work out. And then, uh, you know, I felt like I was really just in the right place at the right time. I'm really grateful that I have a, a steady job where I can just work on this stuff. I have kind of a weird job where I work for a private company, but we end up doing lots of academic research. So it means that I don't really have to do any teaching or anything like that because I'm not a really an academic, but I end up spending my time, a lot of my time at least, doing academic work, which is cool. I'm really grateful for my the wonderful people that I work with. You know, this is a this is a team sport, right? And it's, it's a big team sport. And, I, you know, I rely on a lot of, you know, medical doctors, other kinds of collaborators, physicists, radiographers who run the scanners, and particularly the, the young people that I work with, my, my, my PhD students. I've got one at the moment called Natalie and another one called Rayan, who are both fantastic. They do the hard work, actually, mostly. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so lucky to work with such an amazing, actually several groups of just amazing people. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's definitely life's a team sport, right? So with all your memories and stories and all your intentions and gratefulness, what are you creating? Yeah. Well, I've just made, I just made a big mistake, which one that you're probably familiar with okay. or you may be familiar with because you've just written a book. So I've just agreed to do a book. Oh, yeah. Which I feel, I feel, you know, is, is one of those things that sounds like a good idea at the time, but when it, when it actually starts coming over the horizon, you feel like, oh shit, now I've actually got to write <laughs> this up. damn thing. What are you going to write on? Well, no, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a kind of technical academic type book on pharmacological fMRI, oh, okay. which is my, my specialist yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to get other people to write different chapters and bits of it. So I'm going to be kind of the editor, but I'm still going to have to write quite a lot of it, I think. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's due at the end of next year. So I've got a bit of time. If you want to include like a comic book chapter or something, let me know. I could maybe pitch in on <laughs> okay. that level, but not on the academic level. Yeah. Yeah. But cool. Cool. What am I creating? Yeah. So there's that. I'm trying to you just create new ways of move uh, it's kind of it's kind of boring but another kind of strand of my research is basically just trying to move the methods that we use forward particularly when it comes to like the reliability of what we do because fmri it's 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 good in lots of ways but it's pretty noisy uh, and it's pretty it's 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 a good measure in some ways but a bad measure in others so i've got a strand of my work where i'm trying to kind of push the methods forward and and optimize things in that way that's got to be difficult because everything's got its strengths and its weaknesses right and as soon as you bring some of the weaknesses out into the light of day there's always going to be that reductionistic oversimplification impulse well then like let's chuck this despite its strengths or whatever right 
but trying to, you know, maintain its utility while improving it is a, a tough needle to thread. So I'm glad you're at the helm of that particular project. Yeah, it's not easy, but yeah. And yeah, I make a very minor contribution to that, but it's I still I still feel like it's it's worthwhile. And then, you know, one of the things that I'm really feeling particularly in the last few years as I get older, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm not super young anymore. I'm on the wrong side of 45, closer to 50 actually. Um, <laughs> and it's it's actually seeing the young people that I work with and seeing them develop their careers and helping out with that as much as I can. That's a really nice thing that's come along recently. So there's been quite a few students that I've worked with over the last 10 years that have gone on and done, you know, awesome things in other places or, or carried on working with me a bit. That if I, you know, if I've had a role in some of those, I'd like to think I have. That's a really nice thing. And that was something that I kind of hadn't really expected. I would like so much, if you like. But that's a really, that's a really nice role to have. Mentoring. Yeah. 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 And occasionally I do silly songs and record, record them here in my room that I'm sitting in and put them on YouTube. Yes. Um, oh, I got to so check that out. I, I didn't know I that. that well. So, uh, yeah. I'll be checking that out later today. What's the what's the handle? What's your like YouTube channel thing or whatever it's called? Oh, I can't remember. Hang on. Look up Matt Wall on Yubtub whenever you get a chance. Okay. That's just my name. I'll send you a link. I'll send yeah, you a we'll, link we'll, to my We'll put my, it in the show notes in the bio. Hit. Yeah. Let's do that. None of them get any views really, but it's uh, about to get at uh, least one. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be non-zero real soon. Well, that brings us to our fifth and final question which uh, I know you've been eagerly anticipating. Who are you really, Dr. Matt Wall? Yeah, this is, this is the toughest one, man. This is, this is hard. Everybody fulfills lots of roles in their life, right? So, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a scientist, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a brother. And you, you know, you tailor yourself to those different roles. I feel like, I feel like as I, get older i'm getting more comfortable with that kind of thing i'm getting more comfortable like when you're when you're when you're in your 20s there's a lot of kind of for me anyway there was a bit of kind of flailing around and trying to figure out who you are and you know one of the one of the only nice things i think about getting older is you become a lot more comfortable with that kind of thing and you accept that you're never going to be a rock star and that's that's okay you know that's fine so yeah i uh, i think i'm 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 obviously trying to avoid the question but i think i'm <laughs> um i'm pretty comfortable with who i am fulfilling all those in psychiatry those we call this a circumlocutionary roles. answer <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah but I, but you know i i'm i'm fulfilling all those those roles as well as I can, you know, I, I screw up in some, some of them, many of them now and again, but you know, that's, that's life. That's fine. I'm comfortable with that as well. And yeah, I think that's it really. sounds like you're becoming very comfortable with who you really are, regardless of how you might articulate that as kind of the place you're in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, apart from the baldness, I lost you know I lost my hair during the pandemic. That still sucks. Sex hormone related. Not that you're doing any of that work, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience? 
I would say if you're listening to this and you're you're in the psychedelic kind of community or you're interested in that kind of stuff, I think we have at the moment we have this wonderful opportunity in the development of psychedelic treatments where we can develop them clinically. Uh, we can do the clinical trials and get them into different patient groups and so on and so on. But really for the first time, we have this opportunity to do this really cool basic science, neuroscience work on these drugs as well. And we can do these things in in kind of lockstep, you know, shuffle forward on one and shuffle forward on the next one and so on. And we, we've never really had that before. Like the, if you think about the last major class of psychiatric drugs, which is probably the SSRIs that came about in the kind of late 80s, these are kind of standard antidepressant selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. We didn't have functional MRI or, or, or the kind of PET technology that we have or, or all of this, you know, deep learning networks for analyzing EEG data and all this stuff. We have all this, we have all these, you know, really amazing tools now. And we have this great opportunity where we're developing these drugs clinically and we're trying to do the basic science and look at the neuroscience of these things and figure out how they work as well at the same time. And I just think that's really cool. And it's a wonderful opportunity. And it's, it's, I'm so privileged to, to be a part of it. That's outstanding. I appreciate those thoughts and I appreciate you being a guest on my podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Doc out. <laughs>